0: I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Acts, chapter 1, is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. Uh, as uh, we continue moving through this book, you'll find the book of Acts in the New Testament, right after the book of John. There are the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the book of Acts. And Acts, chapter 1, I'm going to read from verses 1 to 5 uh, this morning. And I want you to follow along as I read. While you're still turning there, let me just mention, I uh, we have not made... a a grand gala celebration of this, but tomorrow is our church's 40th anniversary. Uh, The first meeting of grace was on May 12th, 1974, so uh, we are thankful to God for his uh, great faithfulness to us. We'll, We'll have the gala at 50, so that'll be good. Start planning now. Acts 1, verse 1. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now we've read the book. Let's speak to the author, shall we? Father, we come into your presence today and we have your book open before us. This is a marvel. It's a mystery to us. Would you speak to us through this book? Now, we believe that's what you do. That's why we read it and, and think about it and, and study it. These words that were written uh, 2,000 years ago by a doctor, uh, Dr. Luke, are here for us. And yet they were also written perfectly and fallibly by the Holy Spirit. And you, in your great grace, you're, you're kind to us. To speak, how, how can it be that this perfect word could be read and explained by a very fallible person and we could hear you speaking to us? It's amazing. Help us. We confess we are weak and often distracted um, by, by good things. We're looking forward to spending time this afternoon with family or we're weary from hard work done yesterday But we've got your book, your words, open before us. Oh, speak. Speak to us. Change us. Challenge us. Transform us. Do it because you're kind to us. We, your sheep, long to hear our shepherd's voice as your word is is opened before us. So help us. We pray together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. If you are involved in any sort of service industry job, if you uh, check people into hotels, if you clean, if you uh, sell uh, things to people, if you're a landscaper, you know what it's like to have an unsatisfied customer in your face. Um, You know what it's like to have them try to dress you down. You know what that angry face is like. You know what that spittle that comes out of their mouths at times feels like when people are unhappy with the work that you have done. Uh, Gary Thomas once wrote about a businessman who um, was getting tired of being yelled at uh angry customers would stand in front of him uh sometimes they they talk so fast and so intently he actually developed the skill of being able to look like he was listening very intently while daydreaming <laughs> he learned that in church so um uh, and, and one day he was sitting listening to a woman just really yelling and, and and he kind of it was as if he was watching her from afar and he saw and to his amusement, he realized that when she was yelling and talking with real great intensity, she kind of looked like a monkey. So he got an idea, and he redecorated his office. He added one thing to his office, and the angry, angry tirade stopped almost instantly, almost completely. Do you know what he added? A mirror Right behind his desk, right behind the counter where all the customers would come in, he hung a giant mirror. And people standing there and seeing themselves start to get enraged and looking at what they looked like, they stopped. It calmed them down. It was amazing. Hmm. Uh, mirrors can be powerful things. Uh, They show you what's wrong and they give you some help in fixing what's wrong. I imagine that before you left your house this morning, you consulted a mirror. Some of you had five minute appointments. Some of you had 60 minute appointments, fixing the damage, covering the flaws. And when you got here, some of you, the first thing you did when you got here is you went into the bathroom and you looked again to see what damage the car had done to all of your work that you had accomplished sitting in front of that mirror. Uh, Because you know exactly what a mirror is, you know what the Bible means when it says it is itself a mirror. We look into the Bible and we see ourselves. We see what's wrong and it tells us about how we are fixed. Uh, as we get a good picture here of ourselves, the Bible, interesting, it transforms, it it starts out as a mirror where we see ourselves and then it becomes a window where we can see life as God intended it to be. Uh, Last week we started a study of the book of Acts and Acts is a mirror that all of us, all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ and who call this congregation our home, Acts is a mirror for all of us to look in and and together. It's a church mirror. How do our values, how do our goals line up with what is here? We want to see how we look in this book. And more importantly, we want to add to our own church the enthusiasm, the vision, the power, the the mission, uh, the confidence that these early followers of Christ had. And that's a process that begins in the first few verses of chapter 1 of Acts. We have before us, I just read the introductory paragraph um, to this book, and these verses are to, uh, are to function as a bridge. They bridge the time between the era when Jesus was working and teaching and the era in which he left uh, the disciples and ascended into heaven. He was here, he died, he rose again, now he's gone again. But before he left, he spent 40 days meeting with his disciples, preparing them for life without him. Um, he actually expected their life without him, and he said this. I, He said it, it's true, but it's amazing to me. He said, it's for your good that I'm leaving. He expected their life to be more full, to be more expansive, to be more dangerous and more joyful with him gone than with him here. It was to their advantage that he left them. Before he he went, he he prepared them, and he prepared them by giving, and Luke summarizes this for us here, an interpretive scheme, an interpretive grid for understanding what they were going to see and hear and experience. Luke doesn't tell us everything that Jesus says in these 40 days. He summarizes it uh, in just a few words. But he, he, he summarizes what Jesus wants his followers to know, to believe. To, he wants to prepare them for survival. These are boundary markers. As, as we move forward through the book of Acts, and as we move forward embracing this same mission that Jesus is going to give them these are the boundary markers around which we're to think about our own experience we're going to see how these truths and i want to point out three of them in these verses how these three foundational truths shaped them and then how it's supposed to shape us in our understanding of of what happens to us when we embrace this mission i want you to imagine here that you're on a plane in a plane it's a little plane I say it's a little plane, and some of you say I'm never getting on a little plane. I uh, this is well, if you've seen an adventure movie, if you've seen three of them, this has been this scene has been in at least one of them because this is a a, a, a theme often in adventure movies or television shows. You're on a plane, it's a little plane, and what's happening outside? Of course you're in this little plane. You're flying through a terrible thunderstorm. You and some of your friends and and the pilot is just a few feet away because it's small and and the the plane is rocking a little bit because of the the thunder and the wind and the rain and all of a sudden there's a tremendous boom and a bright, bright flash and and the noise, it's noisy in there, the wind and the rain and the engines. Well, some of that stops. (coughs) There's a cough and the engines die. The pilot turns to you and he says, the engines are, are are dead, it's over, we're going down, put on a parachute. So you strap your parachute on, uh, you open the door, the pilot's instructions, and the pilot turns to you and says, now remember, count to five and pull this cord. Count to five and pull this cord. No matter what happens, no matter what you see, no matter how you feel like you're doing in the air, count to five and pull this cord. Now, he said it so many times. What do you do? You're just standing there looking out this door of this plane. You say, count to five and pull the cord. Count to five and pull the cord. Count to five and pull the cord. Now, look here. Jesus is, has been piloting this plane. Peter and John and James, they're about to get out. What does Jesus say? Well, let's talk about those things. Three things he wants them to be certain of. Number one, the reality of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection. Now, the first few verses of Acts 1 uh, contain some overlap between the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Uh, Pastor Scott just read the end of the book of Luke, and uh, we see here, as uh, as is in the first few verses of Luke, which we looked at last week, uh, the repetition of the author uh, or the recipient of this book. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, um two things to see in this verse here. Theophilus. Last week I told you, um huh. <laughs> when I was in Greek class, um uh, every now and then in Greek class, some 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 poor student would come up with a, a brilliant interpretation of the Bible that no one had ever heard of before based on his extensive three weeks of Greek. And uh um uh, the professor sometimes, um, sometimes kindly, sometimes less so, would say, now here's a student who is educated beyond his intelligence. Or sometimes they would say, ah, you have learned enough Greek to be dangerous. Well, I told you that the word Theophilus, the name Theophilus means lover of God. It actually means loved by God. I confuse my subject and my object I know enough Greek to be dangerous. I mention that just so if, you're, if it's on your baby name list, I don't want you to have the plaque carved with the wrong translation. So it means loved by God. Well, that's over. And then verse 1 also says, Jesus began. That's a beautiful word. Began. This is what Jesus began to do and to teach. And if if Luke... The Gospel of Luke is about what Jesus began to do. What's the book of Acts? The implication here is that the book of Acts is what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. Except in the book of Acts, it's going to be how he does it through his apostles and by his spirit. Now, verse 2 is the ending point of Jesus' ministry on earth until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And then, verse 3. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. This is the only place in the Bible this word convincing proofs shows up, that word. And it means proof that is decisive. Proof that is decisive. Uh, Jesus appeared to the, uh, the apostles often enough and consistently enough that they knew, they knew without a doubt that Jesus was really risen from the dead. These men were not expecting it to happen. These men and women defi- defied their belief, but they knew after this 40-day period, period of time they, they knew that Jesus was not a ghost. They knew that Jesus was not an actor, that, that, that it wasn't an actor appeared to look like him. He was not a figment of their imagination. They knew this. If, if this had happened today, they knew that the, the resurrected Christ that they were seeing was not a robot. They knew that he wasn't a holographic image. They knew he wasn't an impersonator wearing a rubber mask. This is not Daniel Day-Lewis showing up for the career of his lifetime. Jesus came back from the dead, and they were certain of it. And these first witnesses, they were all eyewitnesses. They saw it for themselves. They were absolutely sure. This was objective reality for them. Uh, They gave proof of their certainty in this resurrection by how they lived their lives and how it transformed them. The effect that the resurrection had on these men and women is is often cited as one of the ways we know that Jesus rose from the dead. They died for this belief. They were that confident in it. What we have here in these first few verses of the book of Acts are objective and subjective elements. Christianity is objective. It makes objective claims. It makes the objective claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, the subjective part of it will come in verse 5, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But here is the reality that separates Christianity from all other religions. Our founder is not dead. There's no tomb for the Lord Jesus. There's no bones in the ground anywhere on the planet. Now, think about this here and the, the, the shocking nature of this claim. Um, Kevin DeYoung told a story very similar to this a few weeks ago. I heard him speak. Imagine uh, you see a friend of yours, and, and um, he says to you, my grandma, she's alive. Last week, you were at his grandmother's funeral, and you saw her. She, you're you're pretty sure. So your friend, it means kind, right? You say, yes, she lives in all of our hearts, right? She lives in our memories, we we love to think about your grandma and how wonderful she was and No, no, my grandma, she's alive. Yes, in our memories. She'll live forever. She's in my heart too, just like she's in your heart. Your grandma, wonderful. No. No. I took some flowers this morning to her tomb, to her grave. It's open. The vault, uh, the the cover of the vault is it's been moved. The casket, there's nothing in there. So I I dropped the flowers, I ran home, and I went into my kitchen. I was going to tell my parents, and Grandma was at the stove. She's making cookies right now. Oh, you would want to go check those out, right? Are they any good? Is your Grandma still really alive? This is stunning. And the Bible is making this claim about the Lord Jesus. He is really alive. This is ultimate reality-shaping truth. Um, this, this, If Jesus really rose from the dead and the Bible offers that same resurrection hope to all who believe in Him, that means that everything that happens to us in this world takes on a different shape. It has a different flavor. Everything that I see... Everything that I experience is different because Jesus rose from the dead, and all those who are in him have that same hope how oh, today 's mother 's day is there are there any tasks Is there any task on the planet that is more joy filled and more painful than parenting? Is there anything that that gives you greater pleasure in seeing your kids and, and the, the life that they lead and uh, anything that, that caused you to worry more. Anything that caused you more joy and more anxiety than parenting. How does the resurrection affect how you parent? How does the fact that Christ rose from the dead change how you interact with your kids, how you respond when they make terrible choices? Um, how does it affect the pride that you have in them or the joy that you take in parenting? This is ultimate reality shaping truth. There's no joy on earth that compares to the good news, goodness of this good news. There's no pain on this earth that is ultimate because Christ has risen from the dead. If Jesus rose from the dead, there are few things that are ultimate. This is about the time of year that my junior or senior high school in Perry, New York holds a um, an annual academic awards program. Uh, it was named after one of the teachers uh, that was there when I was a student. It was a special program at school. It was in the evening. They invited all the parents and everybody wanted to come, and they inducted people into the National Honor Society, and they handed out academic achievement awards, well, I picked up one or two uh, awards at these events. I took them home. I put them on my shelf, and there they were, nice wooden plaques, beautifully uh, stained walnut with a nice engraved brass um, nameplate on it. Uh, my children, uh, they, they get trophies when they get them. They, they put them on their, their shelves, too, um, if you're in school, what are you supposed to be doing? Studying. So, it, it's good that you're, you're, you're having success, that you're doing, if, if you're playing a sport, it's good that you, you play it hard and that you have a letter to, to display in, in some way. But now, right now, my pins and my plaques and my certificates are in an old box in the attic. I haven't gotten, I carried them up. 15 years ago and put him in the attic and I haven't opened the box since then. There's probably some dead animal in the box right now. Um, So many things have happened in my life that that's really the best place for them, right? Wouldn't you find it odd, would you find it a little odd if you walked into my office and and I said to you, hey, look at this, I won this in 1987. I, I took a history test and I passed. Look at this. You'd be a little disturbed. So many things have happened since. So many more important things have surpassed that. Um, I've gotten married. I have children. I, 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 I got another degree or two. That, that certificate's in the attic, too. No one, no one ever, not once in any circumstance, has ever asked me to wear my National Honor Society pin. No one, never, ever. Sad. I wonder, though, if you're still hanging on to something, if you've still got some plaque hanging, maybe not actually on your walls, but in the wall of your imagination, it is some accomplishment that for you is, is everything. It's probably not a high school plaque. You probably moved beyond that a little bit, but, but maybe there's some new things now that, you're, that, you're, that are going to define life for you and be a higher salary, a better job, a bigger house, a newer house, or... Maybe some of the things that you have hanging up are anti-dreams, things that you wish had come true that that haven't, Um, bad things, a lost job, a bankruptcy, a, a failure, a dream that died. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, none of those things are ultimate. There's not even a box somewhere in eternity where you'll be able to keep those things. Why are you struggling with, with, with bitterness because God hasn't given you all the things that you think you need to make you happy? Why, why are you angry with God because you don't have a spouse and you need a spouse, of course, to be happy in this world? Or, or you're angry with God because the spouse you have has some sort of disease that's tearing apart your life. Brothers and sisters, does that bitterness, that anger, that frustration, does it at all cohere with God's great eternal promises of life? God hasn't yet begun to show you the full extent of his blessings that come through Jesus Christ. So why are you clinging to anything as if it's the be-all and the end-all of your satisfaction? What is God? What goodness of God is he going to unveil? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead and we have eternal blessings to come. This is reality shaping. This is why we can hold on to things in this world loosely because we have a Savior who's been to the next world and who promises to carry us all with him. This is the first boundary truth. This is, this is why the apostles could do what they did because they knew Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And whatever happens to me here, it doesn't matter. I have a life to come. It's going to be full and free and uh, f- more full of joy than anything I will ever experience here. Now, certainty number two. Let's move on. Or The second truth. The certainty of God's plan. That's what I want to say there. The certainty of God's plan. That's in verse 3 also. Um, Look what it says here in verse 3. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, I wish I had been there for some of these lessons. And I wonder, why didn't anybody write them down? He's talking about the kingdom of God. The phrase kingdom of God has been one of the most difficult puzzles for people uh, over the centuries to figure out what exactly does the Bible mean when it says the kingdom of God. What exactly is it talking about? Uh, the word kingdom appears in the book of Acts eight times. It's here right at the beginning and it's here at the end, Acts 28, 31. It's bookends. Uh, Paul in Romans, uh, in Rome, sorry, in Acts 28, is speaking about the Kingdom of God. And in Acts 19 and Acts 20, uh, 28 also, Luke uses this phrase to summarize Paul's ministry. He proclaimed the Kingdom. The Kingdom of God is a summary of God's unfolding plan. Justin Hendricks talked about this a little bit at Sunday school last week. Um, he talked a little bit about the nature of the unfolding Kingdom what I want to do is I just want to briefly mention four ways that the Bible uses the phrase kingdom of God. It's important in Acts. It's going to come up again. So I just want to unpack this briefly. First, there's the sovereign kingdom. There's the sovereign kingdom. God's sovereign rule over creation. First Chronicles 29:11 Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom, you are exalted as head over all. God is is the the creator king, and all creation is his domain. Behold your king, we say. So then secondly there is the everlasting kingdom. The everlasting kingdom, it's the kingdom that is yet to come. And that's the day when everything on earth that is will gladly acknowledge God's supremacy. All sin will be punished, all rebellion put down, and God will be gloriously celebrated as the king of all. First Corinthians 15, Jesus is going to hand the kingdom over to the Father, and God will be all in all the everlasting kingdom. Uh, Many of the prophets pointed forward to this day. Then third, there is the spiritual kingdom. The spiritual kingdom. This is the realm of all believers. Colossians says that God through Christ brings you out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. Um, You enter this kingdom by faith. Announcing this good news is the gospel of the kingdom. The parables in Matthew 13 are about this growing spiritual kingdom. Uh, or to use another phrase, an old, old preachers used to use the mystery form of the kingdom. And finally, the Bible also refers to the Davidic kingdom. Davidic kingdom. This is the Israelite nation state. Its headquarters is in Jerusalem, and it's ruled over by a Davidic king, a descendant of King David. Now the Bible at various points uses the word kingdom to describe all four of these, and they have overlapping qualities. Sometimes it's difficult to tell exactly what's in view. Sometimes you can tell in the Bible that the disciples are asking a question of Jesus, or the Jews that are around Jesus want to know about one type of kingdom when he's actually speaking about a different type of kingdom. Uh, That's... Interesting, maybe what's happening in Acts 1-6. They gathered around him, the disciples. We'll talk about this a little bit more next week. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're asking about the Davidic kingdom. Jesus, now that you've come, you've risen from the dead, and um, uh, you reign over all things, uh, uh, you conquer death, is now the time you're going to sit on David's throne in Jerusalem, and now are you going to drive the Romans into the sea, and now are you going to rule the world from Jerusalem, and now do we get to be prime minister and secretary of state in this new kingdom that you're going to build, the Davidic kingdom? Uh, Jesus says, well, let's not talk about that. You have a job to do in the meantime. And sometimes there's, there's debate, discussion about the relationship between the Davidic kingdom and the everlasting kingdom, or the Davidic kingdom and the spiritual kingdom. The best way to read your Bibles is to say, when they use the word kingdom, what kingdom are they talking about? Who's asking the question, and what are they seeking to know? Uh, what Jesus, though, the book of Acts tells us repeatedly is that if you want in, on the spiritual kingdom, the kingdom that is happening now, you must be rightly related to the Savior King. You must be related, rightly related to the King who is the Savior. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, whether you know it or not, you live in God's world. The world over which He reigns, it's a broken world. If you look at the the, the pain and the difficulty that some people in this world experience, it, it might cause you to ask some significant questions about God's capability as a ruler. But he is the sovereign. He is a patient sovereign ruling over this world. I wonder if it would surprise you to know that one of the evidences or one of the signs that we have in this world, there are, there are multiple signs, one of the signs that we know in this world that God is king over all is the rising tide of conspiracy theories. That's a strange piece of evidence, isn't it? We talked about this in Bible study a few weeks ago. Isaiah the prophet tells us about this. You know about the rising tide of conspiracy theories, right? Elvis and John F. Kennedy and Osama bin Laden are hid, hiding together and they're the ones who actually planned 9-11. You know, those theories. Uh, one of the reasons that conspiracy theories rise and come and are spread is because people are looking for something to replace God. They, they fear and they long for some sort of higher power. They're looking for some grand a master planner or set of master planners, someone, somewhere who is big enough and powerful enough to control the financial system and control the political system. They want there to be out there some entity, some bigger entity of which they can be in awe. Carl Sagan, uh, certainly not a conspiracy theorist, uh, but he used to have his television show, The Cosmos, and Carl Sagan was famous for how he would say cosmos. And, and Carl Sagan spoke about the cosmos this way, this ultimate entity, this huge reality. Isaiah says, when, when conspiracy theorists talk about this, they're looking for a replacement for God. They're looking for somebody to be over them. Look, look at what Isaiah 8 says. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Conspiracy theories point to this innate sense of this larger, grander power. The Bible tells us that someday the great king, God the king, is going to reestablish his rule over earth. It will be Evident to all people. He'll punish everyone in rebellion. He'll fix everything that's broken. The problem with that, though, is if he punishes everybody who's in rebellion, that includes human beings, doesn't it? People who persist in choosing their own way. We, we persist in living in rebellion against him. The Lord Jesus, the Bible tells us, has come to rescue us. And one of the stunning things about the Gospels is when the Gospel writers write about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did, the Gospel writers, they want you to see this is Jesus, the King, who's come. There's a scene in Matthew 27. This is how Jesus demonstrates his kingly authority. How do you know that Superman is super? Super. He uses his power to rescue people. How do you know that Jesus is the Savior King? Because he's come to rescue us. In Matthew 27, there's this very famous scene where the Roman soldiers have, um, have uh, scourged Jesus, they flogged him, and now they turn their attention to mocking him. And what do they say about him? How do, how do they do it? They crown him with a crown of thorns, and they, they put an old imperial blanket on him. It would have been a faded purple blanket. They give him a staff and where do they shout, Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! There's irony here. Right? They're saying one thing that they mean the exact opposite. They're saying, Hail, King of the Jews! But they don't mean Hail, King of the Jews. They mean that they think that Jesus is weak and stupid and vile and treacherous and worthless. He's the scum of the earth. Not the king. And that's what they say. It's what they mean. And the greater irony is that Jesus is the king who left his home in heaven to rescue us. His crown is indeed a crown of thorns, his throne is not a golden chair, it's a cross and he was lifted up for all to see. And Pilate ordered that a sign be placed above him that says, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And the Gospel writers want you to read that sign and say, yes, indeed, he is. He is the Savior King. He's the one who demonstrates the full strength of his love and the full wonder of his glory by dying in our place by paying the penalty we deserve for our sins. He's the king who rescued us. But friend, listen, he is the one who is coming to reign. And now while you can, you must you must turn to him by faith. You must recognize that he paid the penalty for your sin on the cross. And when you rely on him, when you turn to him in, in trust, you are rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's dear Son. This is the plan. This is the plan of the kingdom. Everything that's going to happen in the book of Acts is part of this plan. Everything that has happened since is part of the plan. God has a plan. He has always had a plan. It's sure and it's certain. It cannot be and it will not be derailed. You know, actually, one of the evidences of the, of the plan and its fulfillment is in the end of verse 2. The Holy Spirit, instruction through the Holy Spirit, to the apostles, He had chosen. These are the the right men to be involved in the plan. God has a plan. It is a certain plan. We're going to encounter mysteries in the book of Acts that are going to be defying to us. Things that, from our perspective, make very little sense. The Apostle Paul, you know, in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul spends four years in prison. I find that to be stunning. Huh, the best missionary that ever lived, God puts him in prison for four years. How can that possibly be part of God's plan? But Jesus is, is, is building in these apostles this certainty. This, I have a plan. There is a plan. If there are seasons in the life of a church Um, seasons of growth, seasons of stagnation, seasons of easy sailing and hard slogging, days when the breeze of the Spirit is, is pushing you along, and days when you feel like you're wrestling with a whirlwind. Most of these challenges come at inconvenient moments, but they're part of God's plan. How wonderful to be part of a church that follows Christ faithfully through the light and through the dark. Because God has a plan. He's carrying us forward. Now finally here, there's this third foundational truth. The promise of the Spirit. The promise of the Spirit. This is the gift Jesus described. It's promised by the Father. Notice how Trinitarian this passage is. Right, The whole book of Acts is so Trinitarian. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is going to come in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the center of where God works. And in verse 5, Jesus tells the disciples, the apostles, what John, what the Holy Spirit is going to do by comparing it, comparing His coming to the baptism of John. This is strange. Um, they're the same. John baptized with water... And they're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's how they're different, the different means, the different instruments, water and the Holy Spirit. But how are they the same so that we understand this comparison? He goes back to John. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance and anticipation. John came and announced that God, that holy God was coming and he called the people to repent, to turn from their sin, and the water was symbolic of that cleansing. I have the people John baptized were to say, "I have turned from my sin. I am ready for God to come, and I'm going to be baptized uh, as as a sign of my internal act." Now they're going to be baptized by the Spirit. Not because God is coming, but because God has come. And the Spirit is not going to just symbolize cleansing work, but He's actually going to do it. He's going to apply the cleansing work of Christ on the cross to the hearts and minds of the people. Jesus died on the cross. His work is applied individually to followers, uh, to those who trust in Him at various times by the Holy Spirit. His work is purifying work. It's cleansing work. Um, so that God can dwell with them and in them. Cleansing is the key between the two. I'm not sure if this is a suitable illustration, but I, I'll, I'll try. Um, my in-laws are going to come to uh, visit us at the end of the month, uh, later this month, and because they're coming, we're going to clean the house. We clean it other times too, but we're really going to clean the house when my in-laws come uh, to honor them, to show them that we're glad that they're coming to our house. We're going to do everything we can to make the place look good. My mother-in-law, like my mother, has an immaculate house. Uh, my in-laws, uh, they take a perverse pleasure in keeping appliances and things forever. Uh, my father-in-law mows his lawn with a lawnmower that's older than I am. And he'll tell you, one pull is all it takes. He's very excited about that. One time they called... They called an appliance repairman to the house. They had to fix the refrigerator. And the appliance repairman pulled the refrigerator out, looked at the coils in the back, and said, h- h- how old is this refrigerator? And, and my mother-in-law told them how long they had had it. And he said, I have never seen a refrigerator this clean. They don't come from the factory this clean, this refrigerator. <laughs> when they come to visit, we clean, right? Um, and it makes my wife happy we like to live in a clean house, right? Now if my in-laws ever moved in with us, yeah, <laughs> understands exactly where I'm going, right? You know. We, if they ever moved in with us, we would need to do more than just clean the house. We would need an entire, I would need a new heart and a new mind when it comes to cleanliness. We would need a level of cleanliness that I'm fairly certain surpasses godliness. There are things in the house we would need to get rid of. The dog. Alright. Maybe my children, all right. I'm not sure I would be able to live in the house. We would need new tools. I would need I would need an infinite amount of patience to 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 get those coils in the refrigerator, every grain of dust off of them. I would need a transformation in my priorities so that I could give myself over to the level of cleanliness that would make my in laws comfortable in our in our home. See, the the Spirit comes and he cleanses because God is moving in. He changes our priorities. He endures us with virtues and values. He, he gets rid of certain things in our lives because God's going to take up possession in the church. What we're going to discover is actually the Holy Spirit comes not just to purify, but he comes to empower too. Jesus speaks, isn't it verse 2, through the Holy Spirit and the apostles are going to speak through the, the Holy Spirit. He empowers so these are the three truths. Jesus, Jesus built them into disciples, into the disciples. If we want to read acts and we want to become like this church, we're going to learn about how we have to have them built into us too. Put yourself back on that plane. What does Jesus say to Peter and John before they launch into the air? Jesus is alive. He has a plan. He gave us the spirit. Jesus is alive. He has a plan. He gave us the Spirit. Jesus is alive. He, he has a plan. He gave us the Spirit. Do these three truths shape how you pray for your growth group members? I wonder if you re- will recruit Sunday school teachers with this in mind before you make a phone call uh-huh, to ask them to teach. Jesus is alive. He's got a plan. He gave us the Holy Spirit. I hope you walk into your Sunday school classroom that way. <laughs> Guess what, children? Jesus is alive, he has a plan, and he gave us the Spirit. Is that, is that how you serve as an elder in our congregation? Jesus is alive, he has a plan, he gave us the Spirit. I wonder if we're going to talk about buying land, or building, uh, or discipling church members, or spreading the gospel in Lancaster County with this in mind. Jesus is alive, he has a plan, he gave us the Spirit. Uh, when a missile shoots from its launcher uh and it heads towards a target there's a constant communication between that missile and uh satellites and and the the launch site and uh, constant gps work going on and constant adjustments the rockets are 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 are, are moving the fins and the flaps move and sometimes in, in ballistic missiles actually the engine shifts a little bit to change the trajectory of that that missile Jesus is launching these men and women in Acts 1 into this fabulous mission around the world and there's constant adjustments and what determines how they're adjusted, these truths. Jesus is alive. He's got a plan. He gave us the Spirit. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we are grateful to you for this um, orientation work that you give us. Father, we are prone to forget. We are forgetful people. And our forgetfulness makes us withdraw. It makes us fearful. It makes us worry. It it makes us um, frustrated and angry and morose. But, Father, we want to be people who are um, realistic about this broken world and yet confident of your great plan for it. Jesus is alive, it fills us with joy. Your plan is certain. We move forward with confidence, and and you'll help us face whatever challenge we have this week because of your Spirit. Father, I thank you for these men and women who who love you and who love your word, and this week they'll face hard things and challenging things, and they'll be tempted to forget these great truths. Oh, God, would you implant this deep within us, this boundary-shaping material? Uh, about our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray these things together, saying, Amen.